Welcome, everyone. This is the first episode of what we're going with right now, Hunter Gatherers. Is it Hunter Gatherer or Hunter Gatherers? Wolf. Yeah, we could call it the Hunter Gatherers. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that sounds good. So we'll go with that for now. Welcome to the show. My name is Phil Koo, um, and uh, my friend here. Would you like to introduce Hi, yourself? Yeah, I'm Techwin. And uh, Techwin here is the, the actual expert. You're the actual expert. I'm I'm just some uh, layperson. In the, you actually have credentials. Um, maybe you want to share the, your credentials. Yeah, well, I, I would probably my main credential that be interesting for a lot of listeners around the world is that. I am based in Malaysia. I am Malaysian, and I have uh, taken the opportunity to go and make friends with some people who are still actually hunter-gatherers, the Orang Asli of the indigenous people of Malaysia, who still hunt and gather and forage in the jungles of Malaysia. So, yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've been working on forest issues for the last 20 years, and I, I say that these people are probably the most interesting aspect of Malaysia's rainforest. And I kind of underappreciated, like, I, I was born and raised in Malaysia, and I didn't, didn't realize that we actually still had these people in peninsular Malaysia. It's really I, incredible. I, I mean, I, I knew about Orang Asli, but Orang Asli that I knew about were kind of uh, agriculturalists i didn't realize they were actually still kind of like semi-nomadic people in malaysia uh, in, it, in Malaysia. yeah just a few hours drive from the one of the one of the biggest cities uh in southeast asia it's it's really incredible and that's how actually we got to know each other is because we know some of the same people the same um in, from the same village uh, i have also visited um the Orong Asli community that uh, Techwin is familiar with, at least one of them. And, um, and my interest is also, um, I've, I'm not um, formally trained or anything, but I, I, I may have a strong interest in uh, anthropology of the, uh, especially focusing on the study of hunter-gatherer cultures, uh, foragers, and also smaller scale societies because they're just so uh, simply so different from the circumstances that we find ourselves in here. And they, they very much contradict a lot of the assumptions we have about what we call human nature or human behavior um, that uh, people tend to bring up. So, uh, I, formerly, I'm trained in uh, graphic design. I don't have any. Uh, I, I did take some anthropology in undergrad, but after that, it was just uh, self-study, and a lot of uh, a lot of that actually. So, I, but you actually have a forestry background, right? Yeah, so I have a degree in forestry, and I uh, com- recently completed my PhD. And my PhD was kind of looking at human ecology and the relationship between people and wildlife. Specifically, I was looking at people and elephants in Peninsula Malaysia. I, uh, I'm interested in wildlife more generally and, I think- and how, uh, how people fit in with that. Yeah. 
maybe it would be good for us because this is the first episode just simply to explain what hunter gatherers are i think everyone sort of has an idea of what they are but maybe we can uh, from our understanding of of the study of hunter gatherer groups or foragers come up with um or at least explain some of the commonalities between them i mean every culture is dis- is unique and different but there are some un- uh, there are some similarities between them yeah well but uh, it's it's a kind of interesting question because it seems that the best way to define them is to define what they are not meaning that they uh they they do not practice agriculture. And that's the, the key kind of like uh, definition that's normally used. But I, I, what I would say is that it's not so black and white. And uh, it, it probably better to say that they get, or, or traditionally, they got most of their nutrition from sources that were not planted or that or, or uh, domesticated animals. yeah animals that were not domesticated so so in in a sense they they are often um, referred to or thought of as primitive because uh, well agriculture was seen as an advance but i i think uh, the general consensus now is that that is a misguided uh, way of thinking because rather than being primitive in many situations around the world, it, was, it actually made more sense. And, and perhaps generally, it makes more sense not to kind of fall into the trap of agriculture and all of the problems that come with agriculture. I would love to expand on that, but I know I'll go off very far. So I'll just yeah. go back to the, the def, uh, sort of helping create this um i at least for us what what we tend to think of as hunter gatherers or what we want to focus on this show um hunter gatherer cultures are generally uh, uh, egalitarian so there's no hierarchy or 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 very 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 little uh or if there is something that resembles a hierarchy it's it's generally just uh it doesn't come with power um sort of like in the the penan of uh, Borneo, they, they do have headmen, but the headmen don't actually have any. Um, they don't have any power, uh, so to say. And um, so that egalitarianism is a very strong feature, and they're fiercely. Generally, these cultures are fiercely egalitarian, meaning there are mechanisms, uh, and individuals um, will very much resist any attempts. Um, either by the outside or internally of anyone uh, trying to assert power or influence over others. Maybe I could could chip in on that slightly. Mm -hmm. I would say slight refinement was that the headmen do have power, but they Mm -hmm. don't have power simply because they're the headmen. They have to earn it, you know? Mm -hmm. They get respect and they have power among the community because they are um, either very persuasive or very intelligent and they are they manage to uh, to convince the rest of the community to follow them 
rather than saying, all right, I'm, I'm the head man and just virtue by virtue of who I am, you have to listen to what I say. Well, from from what I've read and some of my experiences, uh, sometimes it seems almost like a, a reluctant, a reluctant um, role that the head man or head woman plays. And it's sort of like, um, well, I don't want to talk to the outsiders. Uh, he's good at it or she's good at it. And she's the most comfortable and has the best uh, um, capabilities of the whatever outsiders state language. So everyone sort of just looks at that person like, Aren't, are you going to do something when these people show up? And so they have a, they have power in that sense, but it's not um, formalized. And it, 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 uh, it, as you say, it's a respect. Um, um, it's based on the, the relationship. Yeah. yeah. And you, you brought up another point in, in that these hierarchies are often uh, imposed or, they they have they have to come up with this hierarchy or they have to come up with the headman because of the outsiders Mm -hmm. the outsiders want a representative yeah the outsiders don't want to have to deal with every one as an individual because it's often uh, more convenient for the outsiders to say all right yeah i i I met a representative and the community says yes to the logging or yes to the road or Mm -hmm. something Yes, we have the chief's approval, which doesn't really exist. And I'm not sure in the um, community that we know, the Batek uh, community, they use the word um, uh, Badin, right? Badin? Which is, uh, is that a, that's not uh, from their language, is it? Exonym. Yeah, it's a Malay term. And the the Malays, it's used by many of the Oranga state villages. Mm -hmm. It's not a traditional Batek term, no. So that's another um, clue that anthropologists and linguists use to sort of track uh, migration or changes in culture. I know especially with uh, cultivated foods and so on, um, if... if, um, groups have their own words for cultivated foods, cultivars, that sort of hints that, uh, you know, that was a traditional thing that uh, happened. They were traditionally agriculturists that may have become foragers uh, rather than um, using exonyms or introduced. uh, I don't know if exonyms is the right term, but um, foreign words for their domestic, uh, domestic, domestic, plants and animals yeah yeah so um, i've written a bit about this these loan words and borrowing and it's it's really fascinating what you can learn i mean the language kind of gives a clue and then you have to follow it up with other other things like history or genetics or to get or archaeology but um, but yeah the clues that language provides are sometimes quite profound so uh, another thing that you mentioned is that they get the primarily most of their resources uh, or historically uh, the majority, vast majority of their uh, resources, uh, material goods through foraging practices uh, and hunting, which is becoming and has become uh, so difficult these days for most uh, foraging groups around the world. So that you're seeing a lot of, uh, unfor- uh, uh, I don't know, I'd say unfortunate, but um, uh, 
loss of the, the, the knowledge, but, uh, but that is the, maybe the key definition, the key criteria. Uh, and uh, reading this book here, uh, limited wants, uh, unlimited means, I forget which, which paper in here, but made, uh, a point that um, it's immediate return hunter gatherers and those that store resources, um, their societies play out or cultures play out very differently. Um, ones that store goods and have a pile up of uh, resources, those actually have very formalized uh, hierarchies that don't exist in immediate return hunter gatherers. And I think for for the our podcast we're we're quite interested in the immediate return ones uh and obviously the others for for contrast and uh comparative purposes yeah yeah there's a there's another important term well there are two important terms that are connected with this idea of storing food for future i mean the the main one is uh, civilization in that moment that you uh, kind of like had a surplus from your agriculture, then you could have division of labor and then, then these cities could form. And so uh, this is, but it's, it's become such a loaded term that it's almost always thought of as a positive thing, like civilized mm-hmm. uh, compared to uncivilized and uncivilized being savages or, yeah, or really, you know, negative. Yeah, even the word wild. savage. Yeah, savage just means wild in French. Uh, and uh, to be wild yeah. is, is uh, we actually value that in in, um, in plants and so on. We The wild things are assumed to have better nutritional value and cleaner. So to, to be wild is actually... Absolutely. Yeah, in, in, in some respects. But there, there's also... Uh, this idea that uh, if humans are wild or they're more like animals and they're somehow less evolved. Yeah. And so this is, this is another thing that still really permeates um, our, our society. Yeah. It, we it, look it, down on these people as being like, uh, almost subhuman. I think that's um, now I'm going to sort of veer off into a bit more of a philosophical, but it's almost as if that narrative needs to exist for our civilization to exist, to to, to justify so many things. And um, such as the removal of people from the wild, from natural places, uh, because they couldn't. You can't possibly continue to live like that. That's primitive. That is savage. You know, we need to modernize these people. We need to rescue them <clears throat> from their savagery. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, you mentioned yeah, another term there, modern. And mm-hmm. so, um, and this is another one which is, is quite fascinating. The idea that uh, traditional is somehow backwards, is somehow mm-hmm. ancient uh, or or, or and it, it's cute. It's cute, but it's not relevant, really. Yeah. It's yeah, great so for modern, tourism. And and the fact that they are, even though, of course, they're living today, uh, to say that they're not part of the modern world, uh, or they're somehow, yeah, somehow not with the uh, the twenty first century. Mm-hmm. So this idea is worth examining. 
Definitely. So much for future podcasts, so much, so much for uh, future discussions. Uh, what else? What are some other characteristics um, I can think about? Generally, they have a very small or limited material culture. That's another thing. Uh, they place very little emphasis um, on building things. Uh, they build a few things well and you know, other things they'll, they'll acquire through trade generally. And, and they don't they don't worship objects or material things the way we do um, they don't try and keep them in pristine states uh, when something's broken they'll just toss it uh, sometimes because there's an abundance of you know they'll fix things but um they, i i remember in this book one of the anthropologists noted just how 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 little how little care <laughs> I think it was a sun they were in the, the Kalahari with some sun bushmen just how very little how do you say care or they just care they went about with their their things uh, rummaging through a bunch of pile of stuff um, I don't know if that's true for every group but uh, it seems when I went to the Batek villages um, or groups and the um, money I, I tended to it, it, what I saw supported that as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so there's a connection with the material culture of our society and how it's like being overtaken by consumerism and, and uh, all of these. It, well, there's a, a strong link to environmentalism as well, which uh, is often. Uh, we yeah, there's so much to say that um, yeah about the story of stuff, for example, and how stuff that the whole uh, material industrial society depends on people wanting things and 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 put uh, elevating material goods yeah. over relationship. And, yeah. Yeah, and, and the whole rat race, the idea that we need to uh, be in this employee relationship uh, to make money, to buy stuff, and, and, and how we attach our egos to the stuff that we have. Mm-hmm. And, and then, yeah, uh... I, I'm certainly not immune from that myself, but it's, it's certainly something that uh, I agree we need to be mindful of. I think you're, I don't know if what's going on, but your hand might be going over the microphone on your computer. I hear a little okay. bit of a rustling. Oh, I, but, yeah. Okay. But uh, maybe then a good place to continue would be to explain the group uh, of people that we know, the um, Batek or the Maya, and yeah. explain who, yeah, who these people are that we are familiar with. Yeah. Uh, well, the, it's it's quite kind kind of uh, complicated because uh, we have to go back about fifty thousand years ago to the, when people first arrived in the peninsula. Well, actually, that's not entirely true either. When the first anatomically modern humans arrived in the peninsula, and these were people that believed to have come out of Africa, then along the coast of India, 
walking all the way to and eventually came to what is now the Malay Peninsula. And then they they settled down. And we don't know exactly what happened, but eventually uh, they entered the rainforest. And this is a, this is also another really interesting angle in that the rainforest is considered a very difficult place to live because it's uh, well, there's there's n not that much food compared to uh, grasslands or or to the sea uh, the the shore. I think yeah. the shore is actually a place where human uh, hunter gathering is maybe most simple and most easy because you can collect shellfish um, and yeah. that's uh, protein and fat uh, meet all your protein yeah. and fat needs very easily. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, that that's that's what's fascinating that they managed to go inland and quite the quite significant distance inland. We're talking about like more than fifty kilometers from the sea. In in actually, this group actually more than a hundred kilometers upstream, and I'm not sure exactly when, but at least. For the last ten thousand years, there's been rainforest in in that part of uh, Malaysia, and in addition to this challenge in finding food, they also had to deal with wild animals, including tigers and elephants, and, uh, and these kind of challenges were what shaped their society. I believe quite strongly that they. Uh, if their society evolved to deal with the, all of these uh, these challenges, and today they're a tiny tiny minority. They're only uh, about three or four villages, less than say less than five hundred people. Although their numbers about uh, numbers quite difficult. Um, the, other, the other thing which complicates matters is that there are actually several groups uh, that call themselves Batek. And the most famous one uh, is the Batek that are found slightly to the east of the group that, uh, that uh, to our group, the one you mentioned, call themselves Maya. And they are, uh, uh, yeah, they all claim to be the true Batek. Batik just means people. Actually, the, the way they pronounce it, the, the way they Maya pronounce it is like uh, Bate. Bate. And they, uh, when when asked them about that, they said, yeah, we are the, we are the real Bate. <laughs> but of course, the, that's, the other group say the same thing. It, that seems to be a, a common trait. I mean, if you think about also just if uh, you and a bunch of friends, I, I tend to do this sometimes, but just think about a bunch of friends and then a bunch of other friends from high school and then, you know, suddenly everyone else disappears and you just how, how, how would people behave without governance, uh, formalized governance without the state? You know, you'd be like, well, we're the, this is the real, we're the real people right here. I don't know what, who those people are calling themselves the same. You know, there's a, there is that sort of um, 
pride, but it, it doesn't spill over into really much else than, than uh, just a little bit of that uh, sort of normalized. Uh, this is normal and they're kind of weird and they talk funny. But obviously, you know, the, the other group will think the same thing of of the other group. But uh, yeah, the, so... That's the funny thing. I, again, your microphone is sort of covered, I believe. Okay. There we go. Uh, all right. I, right. So I know where not to put my hand. Okay. Um, yeah. So this is the funny thing because I mentioned that there are three or four villages. They have that uh, kind of uh, comment about the other, the other villages within known group. Oh, those from that village, they speak kind of funny. Yeah. Even though the, the other village is only about um, 20 kilometers from where they live. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. They haven't gone through you know, a uh, standardization process. And it's interesting to observe what we live in when you've been to these uh, to their community, you know, their group, their their, and see how how they live, and then you realize, well, oh, we've gone through a process of standardization, which has been implemented by the state long ago, and we just consider that normal. But it was actually something that was forced upon, you know, the populations at the time. Um, so, so many things that people think are normal just. Uh, they're they're normal now, but they were very much resisted, and it took a lot of uh, force and to to actually get people to comply with it. Yeah. All right, um, to get back to the definition of who they are, I, yeah, uh, would add so there are these maybe three or four groups that call themselves Batek, but they also uh, they are more or less form a continuum of very similar people that. Uh, move from the middle of the peninsula all the way up from Malaysia to Thailand. And you mentioned the money. The money are the northernmost group. So the Maya are the southernmost, and the money are northernmost. And in between the other groups, like the Jahai and the uh, uh, Dano and, uh, and uh, uh, Menri. Yeah, so there are there are several, and they're all very closely related linguistically and and also I think genetically. Mm -hmm. Their cultures as well are almost identical. It's a you were saying it was interesting um, how they came how people came to the peninsula about fifty thousand years ago, and. Uh, from what I've read too, that the, the rainforest here, uh, I'm not there where you are now, but the, in the peninsula and also Borneo and, and Southeast, uh, I think around that region of Southeast Asia are some of the oldest, if not the oldest in the world. So the adaptations by the people who've been living them presumably, or might be some of the longest uh, adaptations to that uh, environment. Whereas um, from what I've Red, uh, the Amazon is is younger, and also some of the hunter gatherers people there are were actually um, agriculturalists uh, until very the the European arrival, which brought a lot of disease and uh, 
just a, a collapse of what was going on there and resulted in people becoming or turning to hunting, uh, hunting and gathering as a, as a way to, yeah, as an adaptation to the circumstances, trying to avoid the, uh, <laughs> the narrative of uh, regression and so on, because it, I, I don't, I don't think it's very useful. Yeah, I think we all fall into different traps because we we kept we were brought up in uh, in this in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I would add, but this this question of how long they have been there and how long they have had to adapt. The fifty thousand years is actually really relatively recent if you compare. Uh, probably the oldest uh, or the longest the amount of adaptation uh, that uh, probably took place in the region, which was the group uh, known as the Denisovans or Denisovans that uh, were or seemed to have been in Asia for 200,000 years. And now they were not anatomically modern humans, but... Um, like, uh, for example, they they didn't have the chin that we, we have. Their, their, their jaws were kind of like went straight down. And so they... Uh, uh, and their, their phenotype was a bit different, their, their appearance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So genetically, they, they, I, they only discovered fairly recently and the taxonomy hasn't really been sorted out, but they... They were not uh, well. They are not considered to be Homo sapiens sapiens like modern, uh, modern anatomically modern humans. So, but um, the interesting thing about Southeast Asia is that there was a group of Denisovans that um, moved through Peninsular Malaysia um, and all the way to Indonesia, and the, even though there have been no um, remains, like no skeletons or fossils of this group, we scientists know they were there based on the, their genetic signature of the people in um, like the Australian Aborigines and also the people of uh, Melanesia, like New and New Guinea and so on, who have like more than 5% of their DNA from that early group, which uh, seems to suggest that well, there was some kind of interbreeding perhaps in uh, in Malaysia or perhaps in Indonesia. Or Papua, but, I believe, as well. Yeah. So what, um, what, from what I've read, there have been limited studies done, but there was one group of, of this, uh, the group that we were talking about earlier, the Jahai, uh, and they do not have that high uh, signature of Denisovan. So it seems that the interbreeding was probably more south or mm-hmm. took place uh, a bit further south. Is it, um, is it what you were saying about the migration and, and what we tend to do as well is we assume that the, the let's say the people that are living where where they where we find the remains are somehow the inheritance of the this long lineage and, and in some ways they, they very well well be but in fifty thousand years um, the, the cultures change adapt and uh, and could very well be say a different 
different people in a way to the to the ones that came over yeah so you've got adaptation in terms of their culture which of course can be very rapid but there there's also uh, some uh, strong evidence that there's adaptation in terms of their genetic makeup of the society but that what i found really interesting is that there were certain genes that from the denisovans that uh, were well, I mentioned the 5% earlier, but uh, not only, um, I mean, you and I, basically all of the non-Sub-Saharan African humans do have some of our DNA from Neanderthals and also from, uh, from Denisovans, like it's, but it's like, I think it's less than 2%. But uh, the genes that we did inherit or some of these groups inherit are sometimes really quite uh, advantageous. For example, the people living in uh, Tibet, they, um, they have this ability to survive at high altitudes. And that seems to have come from the population of Denisovans that lived at those high altitudes before anatomically modern humans arrived. And similarly in Southeast Asia, it's thought that the Denisovans evolved um, some kind of resistance to tropical diseases such as malaria. And so some of the groups that um, interbred with those Denisovans got some of that, that genetic immunity. One thing that people might be uh, confused about is that oh, on probably not our listeners, but people in general is that uh, Neanderthal is somehow one stage of evolution of what we have come to be, uh, but they were contemporary uh, human groups or human uh, species. Uh, they're not, they, they split from a common ancestor versus uh, modern humans coming, being a, a uh, um, let's say what we would call an advanced version of a human over a Neanderthal. So there were just two, two different species coming from a similar uh, shared ancestor yeah. and Denisovan as well. Yeah, th that's a really good point. So that th th there were, there were several groups, in fact, several species of human uh, that lived up until maybe around 40, 50,000 years ago. And it's not entirely clear why these other groups went extinct, but it seems that it's most likely due to the fact that we outcompeted them. We as in like uh, modern humans. So when we spread around the world, we displaced them, we caused them to go extinct. But before we did that, we interbred with them to a certain extent. And so the only pure human... Uh, humans are actually the sub-Saharan Africans mm -hmm. and the rest of us, we are all kind of like mongrels. And I, I, I like to use the, I, I only learned this recently, but the gene for straight hair that I think we, we both have is a Neanderthal gene. And uh. if you look at sub-Saharan humans, uh, they all have these really frizzy curly hair. Mm -hmm. They don't have this, this straight hair. So I, I, I think this is an adaptation to cold climate in that you want your hair to, to, to be longer. Uh, and more of a it. shield for the yeah. wind and so on. Yeah, yeah very interesting. I forgot so. what the advantages were to having the, um, the true human hair, uh, uh -huh. the curly nappy hair 
uh, I think, what did it have to do with um, heat or something? I can't yeah. remember, but yeah, very interesting. A lot of things we consider um, human. Also, uh, the our our pale skin, uh, you know, this is, yeah. this adaptation to um, northern regions, which were not our uh, original uh, homeland latitudes. Yeah, and the, the, a couple things about that that are interesting. One is that there's vitamin D. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we get uh, we can generate more vitamin D because we're light skinned and so we can make use of the sunlight for uh, generating that. And people, um, unfortunately, the people who are dark skinned and live in uh, temperate areas, they uh, and often the, the fact that they're so covered up, um, that means that they often have vitamin D deficiency and that can have uh, health uh, implications for their community. I, I read something very interesting about this uh, recently in that new finding, new study show or new uh, research has shown that humans can actually create energy via sun, uh, something similar to, I don't know if it was photosynthesis, but like we can create um, through melanin you can generate uh, energy. So it explains also somehow how um, one can fast for so long. I can't remember if that was actually the extrapolation, but that humans through melanin can create energy um, when eating also uh, uh, green plants and they help and aid in that process. So even though you're not maybe taking in calories from these or next to no calories from these green plants, the chlorophyll together with the melanin allows you to allows humans to create energy. However, us light skin uh, uh, individuals can do that much much less than people with uh, with oh, dark skin we, are. Yeah. Right. So the the trade off. So I, I, I just let me see if I get that correctly. So they're saying that the melanin that you have in your skin, which is mm-hmm. a protein, mm-hmm. uh, you can um, you can p- somehow break that down to create energy uh, if you combine it with plant food, plant-based food. Yes, yes, with with uh, the chlorophyll from plants. Yeah, oh, I have to I'll have to look up the actual article, but I read it in a, a book, uh, a very recent book called Regenerate, uh, mm. which was. Very interesting. So he was saying in the book that it is a very big trade-off. I mean, the the ability to create energy out of sunlight is just Mm -hmm. to to trade that for this vitamin D. uh, It must, it must've been a, it's a big trade-off basically. And well, um, yeah, it's, it's also about protein because when you are in, um, in order to have dark skin, you need, more protein than to have light skin. So if protein is your limiting factor, then it's actually better to be uh, light skin because mm. the, you know, the, the melanin itself, in order to generate the melanin, you need that protein. Very interesting. Well, we've s- sort of veered off the, uh, well, I mean, all these things are, I think relevant to the hunter gatherers mm-hmm. as well, um, but we've sort of gone into yeah. m- m- a lot okay. of um, paleo no, paleo anthropology. But it's it's relevant because the, these guys happen to be very dark skinned. Yes, yeah, and have very curly uh, ancestrally human hair, our true human yeah. hair, I would say. And and that that of course is a bit of a generalization in that. 
uh, like both of us, a lot of them are mixed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, this is another important point in that, uh, well, we, we, we mentioned earlier how uh, uh, our ancestors mixed with the Denisovans and the Neanderthals, but these guys have also, of course, mixed with the various groups of people that they've come into contact with uh, over the thousands of years, over the last few thousand years. And so, uh, and th- this is something, thing uh, to keep in mind that, of course, we're talking about generalizations, but there is the genetic side, there's the linguistic side and the cultural side, and all of these, to a certain extent, are, have, are hybrids. Yes. the I, I read a book by, um, I think she's a journalist, she wrote a book called Wind in the Bamboo, and I think it was called On the Trail or On the Search for... Southeast Asia's Negrito people. And she visited every place except for uh, every country where there are Negrito people. Negrito are the, the, is the classifier for the group of people that um, the Batek are in and uh, Maya or Mani, Jahai. And also in Philippines, the Ita, spelled A-E-T-A, the... Uh, Andaman Islanders, and is there another group? And in Thailand, the uh, Mani people, and is there any other group? There were probably there were undoubtedly more groups uh, around Southeast Asia, potentially even in Taiwan. I heard there's a there's a legend uh, of a small black people uh, as a that don't aren't there anymore, but uh, would make sense. That they they it's not very far from uh, Philippines at all, um, but uh, she visited all these places and she visited uh, the Andaman Islands and the Andaman Islanders are potentially a candidate for what maybe the the people of the peninsula may have looked like or or the language they may have spoke a similar you know linguistically. Um, because they haven't had the influx of Austroasiatic and Austronesian uh, genetics into the into the population. So if you if you look at their phenotype, they're they're, they're short, they're small, um, like the people of the peninsula. But then they're they're much darker. Um, their their phenotype, their features are much more um, we call uh, African. But you know they're they're actually more Asian than the. Uh, Austro-Asians people, uh, Austro-Asiatic people, they've been there longer, right? So what is it? What is an Asian feature, really, if you think about it? You know, if the Negrito people have been in Asia longer than the uh, Mongoloid people, so to say, then what is Asian? But, yeah. yeah, that's another yeah, question. Yeah, this is a good point. And, and, and the, the, uh, the, I, I would like to say a few things about this term negrito in that uh, I think it's correct that the the people of the Andaman Islands, that the, the native uh, people of the Andamans, uh, well, these, and, um, and the Orang Asli, well, 
and the Batek and so on are genetically similar and studies have kind of confirmed that. And your point about language is, I am sure that's true as well. Although this term Negrito is a bit controversial because uh, it's not necessarily the case that the, like the Aita from the Philippines are uh, connected with the, the people of the peninsula. And so that I think uh, is uh, somewhat called into question. And also uh, there's some who say that it's a, uh, like a derogatory term, but I, I, I don't have a problem with the term. I, for our listeners, I think it's worth mentioning that there are some other terms that are used. Another term that's quite uh, been used for quite a long time is samang, and samang is um, yeah applied to look the Negrito people of uh, Peninsula Malaysia and also Southern Thailand. Another term that the the people themselves use is menrat. And I, I like the term menrat because it's a term that well, at least some of them themselves use. Uh, but it's it hasn't been used that much in the literature. But um, again, the menrat only really apply to people of the peninsula. And so it would be nice to have a term that also include the Anman Islanders, but And so I guess that's where the strength of Negrito comes in. And another another, strong point about Negrito is the fact that uh, I think Samang has some negative connotations in Peninsular Malaysia because it was used a lot by the Malays or the the majority um, uh, group. Um, and, uh, And so some of the Orang Asli don't like the term samang, and so they actually prefer the term negrito. But uh, it'd be it, hopefully we can get um, some some of the uh, members, uh, some people we know on the show, who are from the uh, Manya Batek village. It would be great to have them on the show. Hopefully we can make that happen. And we'll need your skills. <laughs> You'll need your language abilities because uh, uh, I definitely can't translate. Yeah, well, I, I can't really speak um, their native language either, but I I can speak Malay fairly well. And so that's like a kind of like intermediary language. And most of them speak uh, Malay quite well. So yeah, that's one of the things we'd love to do with this show is not just um, have us talking uh, back and forth, but also have members of uh, uh, actual hunter-gatherer, uh, practicing hunter-gatherers uh, on the program. Uh, that'll be... a if we can make it happen, that'll be, that'd be wonderful. I mean, I'd love to, something I've wanted to do uh, for a while. And then also uh, get some anthropologists on um, who've, who've lived with them, uh, studied, studied the groups uh, and can, are still working uh, with them. And also other people who might not be anthropologists, but uh, do have experiences um, and are familiar with these cultures and sympathetic to, you know, their, their situation, yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, like, uh, one of the things that we could mention to our listeners is that the idea of doing this was somewhat prompted by the series of um, 
or webinar series that a couple of um, anthropologists that were that are studying orang asli health came up with just a few weeks ago. Uh, yeah, great, great uh, resource. It, uh, yeah. I believe it's Keene State University uh, Orang Asli Health and Wellness webinar, and they're archived on YouTube. So if you look that up, you'll find them. Uh, and you have a, uh, you presented uh, on the episode two, I believe, or three. Yeah, I talked a bit about my uh, PhD thesis, talking about the relationship between the Orang Asli elephants and tigers. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to like discuss some of that as well. Yeah, I think we can definitely do that. Uh, make it just uh, why we could do a whole episode on that, focusing mm. on on that. Well, it's been a, an hour, and I know mm. it's late over there, and we've, I think we've covered the the bases quite well for the first episode. All right, great. Well, I think. Uh, there were a few things that we could learn for future episodes. I, I guess I shouldn't fiddle around with my uh, computer so much because I block the mic and I make scratchy noises. But um, so that's one and a few other technical stuff. But I, I generally, I think it went well. I mean, yeah. it's a good idea of yours. Make it maybe a more productive use of our time rather than <laughs> just chatting the two of us. Well, I, I share it with others who might define this interesting. Well, it happened because uh, another reason this happened was because I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I'm always looking for something. I, I look up anthropology and I see that there's some from Smithsonian or something, but they tend to be focused on, uh, is they cast a very wide net. And uh, my interest in hunter gatherers is, is, uh, it's quite strong. So it's, it's, it wasn't easy to find um, information. And I think a lot of the people, the academics that we read, um, they don't, they don't have very accessible work. I mean, some of them do. I mean, some of the books are like this, this uh, Wade Davis uh, nomads, nomads of the Dawn book is very accessible. Uh, it's, it doesn't, um, it doesn't for the layperson, it's very easy to take in and, and it's uh, got a great, great pictures, but you know, if you're reading an ethnography the way we are, it can, it can, you know, people will just get bored potentially, but I couldn't, I can't put those things down. <laughs> so this would be a great opportunity for people who are as um, interested as we are uh, in the subject to, to hear more. And for people who aren't, who are, you know, heard the term hunter gatherers, think they know what it is, but, you know, then to hear from experts who hopefully we'll have on the show uh, to make that information more accessible, tell their stories, uh, maybe some anecdotal stories of, you know, things they've witnessed and make that information just more, more accessible. Yeah, I think that sounds great. I'm sure that, well, it's a question of the format as well. I think there might be potential for, uh, I think podcast is great. Uh, we could even expand it, maybe uh, do some live casting as well. Mm -hmm. if, uh, we get feedback that people want to interact. Yeah, especially with some of the guests. Uh, I know we have some great contacts and people might want to uh, ask them questions on the air. So that'd be great. 
Well, I'll, uh, I think we should wrap it up and get to sleep. And uh, over here, it's uh, just start my day. Yeah. All right, you have a good week ahead of you. That's great. Yeah, let's. Yeah, let's. Uh, yeah, we'll try same time next week.